You know, I've always been um, very um, uh, fascinated by maps. It's just something that I had from a young age. Uh, I like to look at maps. I love Google Maps. I love real maps. And um, I can just sometimes just use time to just look at a map. That's maybe awkward for, for, for some of you. You think, you know, that's not interesting. But it interests me a lot. Uh, I like to know where I am. I like to know where I'm going. I like to know how the world is, you know, it, it, how it all fits together. Uh, and different places and different um, uh, areas. I, I, I just like maps. And when I think about the Bible, the Bible is almost like a map in many ways, providing us with instruction about where we are in the scope of time. You know, if you've ever been in one of these malls where you can get lost, it's always good to have a map, right? <laughs> and then you have that little sign that says, you are here, and you think to yourself, I've always been here. Uh, but these maps, they are given us for a reason. It is to find our way around. And the Bible is indeed like a kind of map. It's a map that leads us from creation all the way to the final recreation in the end of time. It's a map that provides us with where, where people have been in history and where we are today and where we are heading. But also the Bible provides us with a map to find our way to God, to find our way to the heavenly throne room. The very place where Jesus Christ is enthroned, where God the Father is enthroned. It's the control center of the universe, so to speak. And as we talk about this subject of war of thrones, which is our overall theme, tonight we're going to spend some time in looking at the throne room of God. Where is the throne room of God? How can we have access to the throne room of God? And uh, this is a subject that I believe will be very helpful when you study Bible prophecy. In many ways, Bible prophecy, there's a key to unlock it. And the key to unlock Bible prophecy is the sanctuary. Now, when I say the sanctuary, maybe for some of you, that's kind of a new phrase. What do I mean by that? Well, just hang in tonight and we'll examine this together, what this sanctuary in scripture uh, is all about. Uh, in Psalms chapter 11 and verse 4, we read the following. The Lord is in his holy temple. And actually, when I talk about sanctuary and temple, this is basically the same thing. Uh, the sanctuary was the place where the people of God would gather, and it was the place where God would manifest his presence. And uh, they had a sanctuary while they, were, while they were dwelling in the wilderness, the people of God. And later, when they came into the promised land of Canaan, they built this temple, the temple in Jerusalem. And this was a place where God literally manifested his presence. And uh, the psalm writer here says, the Lord is in his holy temple. But the fascinating thing is that the earthly temple was only a type of a heavenly temple. So though there was a temple here on earth, it was really only a picture, a shadow, a type of something far greater and grander. And that is the very temple or sanctuary that is in heaven where God controls the universe, where his throne room is. And uh, the psalm writer says, the Lord is in his holy temple. Listen to this. The Lord's, what word is that? Throne is in heaven. We're talking here about the war of thrones. We, we have examined already in scripture that there's a conflict going on between good and evil. But as we now focus on the throne of God, the throne where all goodness comes from, where is that throne? Well, it's in heaven, but to be more specific, it's in the temple in heaven, the sanctuary in heaven. His eyes behold, uh, it says, his eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of man. This is from the place from where God beholds everything that happens and from where he controls the universe. In Psalms chapter 80 and verse 1, it says, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. And listen to this, you who dwell between the cherubim shine forth. This is also interesting language. It says that God, which is here referred to as the shepherd of Israel, the one that leads his people, that he dwells between the cherubim. Now, what is the cherubim? The cherubim, um, it's interesting. It is mentioned a couple of times in scripture, and it's actually referring to an angel. And there were two special cherubims that we read about in the Old Testament, and uh, they were placed on what we call the Ark of the Covenant. Now, inside the Ark of the Covenant was uh, the place where, 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 where the Ten Commandments were stored, where the Ten Commandments were placed. 
And when you look at the sanctuary in the Old Testament that, the, uh, that they first built there in the, um, during their wilderness dwellings after they came out of Egypt and, they, and the people of God were, were moving, the Hebrews were moving through the desert for 40 years, they would have this portable tent structure that they called the sanctuary. And it had basically three compartments. You had the outer court where they would sacrifice, which was a symbol of the Lamb of God, Jesus, that would die for our sins. It was like a prophecy of the coming Messiah. Then you would have the holy place where the priest would uh, officiate uh, during the year. And then you had the, what they called the most holy place where no one was allowed to enter except the high priest once a year. And inside the mo uh, most holy place was only one object. And that one object in the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant. Here you have a picture of the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was what was called the mercy seat. And this was basically the lid. And you had two cherubim angels that were carved out and overlaid with gold. And between those two angels, God would literally represent himself through what was called the Shekinah glory. That's where he would dwell when he dwelt with his ancient people of Israel. He would dwell between the cherubims. And uh, he would shine forth there. And so this was, this was a magnificent um, manifestation of God's presence in their midst. And right in, in, in the Ark of the Covenant, you have the Ten Commandments of God. So when the psalm writer says, shine forth from between the cherubims, if we understand that language from a biblical perspective, then what he's actually saying is, God, you dwell in the sanctuary. You dwell in the temple. You dwell between those cherubims in the most holy place. You are right there above the Ark of the Covenant. And now we are seeking your help. We know where you are. We have a map to the throne room of God. And we need your help. We need your guidance. We need your power. So God's people, they knew where to go when they were in need of help. As a matter of fact, there's this fascinating story in the Old Testament. And there's a book in the Old Testament called The Kings. Actually, it's divided into two portions. You have 1 Kings and 2 Kings. And it's basically going through the story of the history of Israel. And there's lots of amazing stories there about good kings and bad kings and wars between different and various kings. Um, and a lot of these earthly historic uh, stories about these kingdoms, they represent something about a bigger picture about the war of thrones and the great controversy between good and evil. And in one instance, there's a king, uh, which was a relatively a, a, quite a good king, actually. His name was Hezekiah, and he was a king over Judah. Uh, and uh, while he was king, Jerusalem was invaded by the king of the Assyrians, um, and um, Sankarib was his name. And uh, they had surrounded the city, and they had already destroyed other nations on their way. And it seemed as if there was no hope for those that were dwelling there in Jerusalem. It was just a matter of time, and they would also be conquered by the Assyrian king. And so what Hezekiah does is he approaches God in prayer. And I'm just, I want to share with you tonight the prayer that he prays. Because in the prayer of Hezekiah, it's very obvious that Hezekiah knows where his help is going to come from. He has a map to the throne room of God. He knows where God dwells. Listen to the prayer here. It's recorded in the book of Isaiah, chapter 37, and reading from verse 15. And the Bible reads, Then Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, saying, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, listen to this, the one who dwells between the cherubim. That's the God that I serve. That's my God. That's the God, the creator God, the all-powerful God, the magnificent, omniscient, almighty, all-powerful God. He dwells between the cherubim. And he refers to God as being right there. And then he says, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. He's referring to the very creator God. Not a God that is made by hands, not a God that is made of stone or wood or carved out in wood or gold or silver. No, this is the real God, the heavenly God, the almighty God. And he's referring to that God as the one that dwells between the cherubim. He goes on in his prayer and he says, Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sankarib. That was the enemy king that had surrounded the city. Listen to what he's saying. Uh, uh, that Hezekiah is saying, you see what he's doing. You see what he's saying. 
uh, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and all their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they destroyed them. Now therefore, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord, you alone. Well, God, God honored that prayer, and it, wasn't short, it was shortly after that, and you can read the whole story in the book of Kings, but God sent a mighty angel down from heaven to defeat the army of Sankarep, and he had to go back to his country, and they were saved. God intervened for them. God answered the prayer of Hezekiah. Hezekiah humbly prayed to the God that dwelt between the cherubims, to the living God, the creator God, the almighty God. And I believe that just as God's people in the past had a map to the throne room of God, they knew where their help was coming from, so it is important for you and I in 2019 to know where to go when we are facing struggles and temptations and trials and difficulties. Amen? We also need to know the way into God's sanctuary. We also need to know the way to the throne room of heaven. The question is, where do we go when we face obstacles and trials? Because we're, we might not be in a city that is surrounded by an army, but we certainly are in circumstances in our life where there seems to be no way out. Maybe you're facing a diagnosis of a sickness, an illness. Maybe you're facing financial difficulties. Maybe you're facing a broken marriage or a broken relationship. Maybe you are, 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 are facing depression and anxiety and fear. Maybe the things that you are facing right now, they seem to overwhelm you. And what you need to know is where to go. You need to know how to approach God and to take hold of his power. Amen? Just like Hezekiah took hold of the power of God. Well, there's good news because in the Bible, the Bible talks about the living God, the almighty God, and how he wants to intervene for his people and how he wants to do this from the heavenly sanctuary where he dwells. As a matter of fact, we've been already studying a little bit in the Old Testament book of Daniel, but Daniel, the book of Daniel in the Old Testament has a twin book in the Bible. And the twin book of the book of Daniel is the book of Revelation. Revelation is the last book that was written, it's, uh, or at least it's, it's, it's the last book in our canon of Scripture. And Revelation was written by John. John was a disciple of Jesus for three and a half years. After Jesus left, he started preaching the gospel together with the other disciples. As a matter of fact, it's interesting because he was the last disciple to live. The rest of the disciples were actually, um, they, they actually lost their lives for their faith. They were martyrs. But John, he, uh, for some reason, uh, God, God protected his life because there was something special that God wanted him to do in the, at the end of his life. And he was, he was banished to the island of Patmos, but on the island of Patmos, he wrote the book of Revelation as God came to him in visions and dreams and revealed to him things that would come to pass. And so we have these amazing prophecies in the book of Revelation. We're going to go to some of them uh, throughout uh, this seminar. But I want you to take notice of just a couple of glimpses in the book of Revelation where John refers to this heavenly temple or this heavenly sanctuary where God dwells. Already in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus is described as walking among the seven candlesticks. And John is on the island of Patmos. He has a vision of Jesus, and he sees Jesus walking between seven golden candlesticks. And if you know the imagery of the sanctuary, you will know where Jesus is. Because in the sanctuary, in what we call the holy place, there are seven golden candlesticks. So what John is seeing in vision is Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary, in the heavenly temple. Then later in Revelation chapter 8, you read about an angel that has a golden censer that is standing at the altar. And again, this is allusions to the sanctuary, it's sanctuary language. There was an altar in the holy place of the sanctuary. In Revelation chapter 11 and verse 19, heaven is opened and John is, or is, is able to look into the heavenly sanctuary and he's able to look into the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary and what he sees is the Ark of the Covenant. What an amazing revelation. 
And then later in Revelation chapter 15 and verse 8, it also talks about the heavenly temple that was filled with a cloud, which was, in, which was a, uh, an indication that there was no longer any, any inter... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, intercession, thank you. Because Jesus was interceding for us as high priest... But then when he's no longer in the temple, there's a cloud that fills the temple and there's no longer that intercession is no longer happening. Fascinating language. So we have all these glimpses in the book of Revelation into the heavenly sanctuary. Now, in order to, for us to understand the heavenly sanctuary, what do you think we need to do? Well, we can't just look up today and see the heavenly sanctuary. So in order for us to know what is going on up there, we need to look at the pattern that has been given us. And this is quite fascinating because God has given an earthly sanctuary in the past to the Hebrew nation in order for us to, to, to teach us about what his sanctuary is like in heaven. Because what was on this earth was only a pattern or an example, an illustration of something greater and bigger. Now, in Exodus chapter 25, and verse 8 and 9, listen to what God says to Moses. And remember that the book of Exodus, is, it starts off with the story of God's people, the Hebrews, coming out of Egypt, out of bondage. They had been in bondage for hundreds of years. They were enslaved by the Egyptians. But God used the man by, a man by the name of Moses to lead them out of slavery, to lead them out of bondage. And as they come into the wilderness... God is dwelling with them and guiding them, and he's going to bring them into the promised land. But before they come to the promised land, he has some very important things to teach them. And he says to Moses here in Exodus chapter 25, verse 8 and 9, he says, Let them make me a what? A sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Some people ask me, what's the whole purpose of the sanctuary? What's the whole deal with the sanctuary? Well, here it's actually summed up. Let them make me a sanctuary. Why? God says that I may dwell among them. And isn't that the message of Scripture? God with us? I mean, isn't that the very message of, of when Jesus came into this world? Emmanuel, he became one of us. He's with us. He walked among us. He was flesh and blood like us. He became a human being like us in order to die on our behalf and, 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 and to ransom us and to pay the price for our sins, and to grant us redemption, and salvation, and healing. This is the whole purpose, that God would come and dwell among us. And the sanctuary is established for that very purpose. That I may dwell among them according to all that I show you. That is the pattern of the tabernacle, and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so shall you make it. So God didn't just say to Moses, okay, I want you to build a sanctuary and you, you just figure out how you want to do it and then, you know, I'll come back and I'll, you know, I'll see what I, what I think about it. No, God was, was very involved in this project. So when he said to Moses, you're going to build a sanctuary, he gave detailed instruction, which you can, by the way, read in the book of Exodus and Leviticus, detailed instruction how they were to build this sanctuary. Because everything in this sanctuary was to point forward to the coming Messiah, to Jesus. It is actually a fascinating prophecy of what God wanted to do through the plan of redemption, through the plan of salvation. I like to call it a picture book. You know, some people, they, they, they learn by listening or reading, but for others, we kind of need visual aids. And visual aids can be very helpful in, in processes of learning and, and grasping things. And it's almost like God is saying, okay, I'm going to teach you about the plan of salvation. I'm going to teach you about the Messiah that is going to come. I'm going to teach you about how I'm going to save you and, how you and how you can approach me. And I'm going to do this by letting you make this sanctuary, because in this sanctuary, it's like a picture book. I'm showing you every single step of how you can approach me, how you can come to me, and how we can have a relationship together. So this becomes very important for us to study together. So let's take a little tour through the sanctuary tonight. Let's take a look at what the sanctuary is really all about. This is just a picture, of course, that you see here. But as they 
first established this sanctuary, they had just come out of bondage, out of slavery, out of Egypt. They, they passed through the Red Sea. You remember the story how God miraculously opened up the Red Sea. They passed through. They come into the wilderness. This is before they have come to the promised land of Canaan. And, and God says to Moses, make a sanctuary. And they start building this sanctuary according to the pattern that was given to them by God. And um, it was in the middle of their camp. So they were encamped. The 12 tribes were all around the sanctuary. And it was a structure, it was a tent structure to begin with. It, there was only one entrance into the sanctuary. And when you would come into the sanctuary, the very first thing that you would meet was called the altar of burnt sacrifice. And this was the very place where they would sacrifice the lamb, which of course is a symbol of Jesus Christ, which is the lamb that came to take away our sins. And so what they would do is, is when, when, when you had sinned, you would, you would take that lamb and you would go into the sanctuary and you would place your hands on the lamb. You would, you would confess your sins and symbolically your sins would be transferred from you to the lamb. And then the priest would come, the lamb would be slain and put on that altar so that when you walked out of the sanctuary, you walked out forgiven, cleansed, and your sin was no longer in you, but it was on the lamb, and the lamb had died in your place. This is a typology, a picture of the plan of salvation. Jesus is the lamb of God, came into this world. He died for us, right, on the cross, took our sins upon himself so that we can go free. So the sanctuary, the very first picture there is a picture of the cross, you could say. The cross is right there. It is a prophecy of what would happen to the Messiah. Now, it's very interesting because there was only one entrance. And you know what Jesus said in John 14, verse 6? He said, he said I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Like, there's, there's not a thousand ways to come to God. There's only one way. There's only one way to come to God, and that is through Jesus Christ. There's only one way to come into the sanctuary. There's one entrance. And it's interesting because God manifested his presence in the most holy place, not in the outer court, not in the first part of the tent structure. It was in the second part, and there was a veil, and no one could enter there. In the second part, in the most holy place, that was where he dwelt. That was where the Shekinah glory was. And God is teaching us something very important here because something has separated us from God. And it's a three-letter word in the English language, sin. Sin has separated us from God. And if God would just manifest his glory to us today, well, we would all die. I mean, we cannot bear his glory because we are sinful mortal beings. And so this is, this is the fascinating thing about the sanctuary. God desperately wants to dwell with us, but he knows that he can't just manifest himself openly because of sin. And so what he does is he says, okay, I will dwell in the sanctuary. And then everything in the sanctuary will show you how you can come into my presence. And you come into my presence by bringing that lamb and by confessing your sin so that your sin is now on the lamb and no longer on you. Isn't that amazing? I mean, this is a picture of how we can come into his presence, how we can approach him. We approach our heavenly father through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our mediator. Jesus Christ stands in our place. He has taken our sin upon himself so that we can again approach our creator and our maker. It is fascinating. In the sanctuary, we have a picture of the cross and a picture of what Jesus did for you and for me. He is the Lamb of God, which took upon himself all the sins of the world. But it doesn't stop there, because of course the Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the Christian life is a, Christian, is a journey. It's a journey. And the sanctuary reveals this journey, because take notice, that as you move from that first object in the outer court, which was the altar of sacrifice, you come to the second object. And the second object is called the laver. And what it was, it's basically a basin with water. And what the priest would do is, as of course he's officiating these sacrifices there, what he would do is before he would go and minister in the holy, in the holy place, he would wash his hands and his feet in this basin of water. Now, of course, this is also symbolic of something. You know, the whole sanctuary is really a symbolic picture of our journey with God. 
Because once we have experienced what Jesus has done for us on the cross, well, there's a kind of cleansing that starts happening, right? There's a spiritual cleansing that takes place. As a matter of fact, uh, in the book of Titus in the New Testament, chapter 3 and verse 5, uh, it's recorded like this. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the what? Of the Holy Spirit. So, so what God wants to do when we encounter the cross, when we encounter what Jesus has done for us, then he starts working in our life and the Holy Spirit starts taking control if we allow him and there is a regeneration that takes place, a renewing. There is a new life that begins. He starts cleansing us. This is a process of a lifetime, but it's a process that begins the moment we by faith, accept him to work in our lives. It's, and it's revealed here in the sanctuary. Well, that was in the outer court. In the outer court, you have the altar of sacrifice, you have the basin. Then when we move into what we call the holy place or the first part of the tent structure itself, there were three objects in the sanctuary, in the, in the holy place of the sanctuary. The three objects in the sanctuary you can see here on the picture are the table of showbread, where they had fresh bread, uh, two piles of, of six bread stacked up there. And then you had the altar of incense and you had this seven-armed uh, candlestick. Now, each of these also, uh, th th they present like a symbolic picture. The showbread is a picture of God's word. If you think about it, you know, when Jesus came down to this earth uh, in the gospel book of John chapter six, he refers to himself as the bread of life. You know, just like we eat bread to physically be nourished and sustained, so we also need to eat the spiritual bread of God's word. You know, and, and, the, and another symbol of that is when they were in the wilderness, they received manna from heaven. You know, manna was this bread that came down from heaven and God nour nourished them. The interesting thing is when, when manna first fell from heaven, you can just imagine that first day they get out of the tent and there's all this white stuff on the, on the, on the ground and they wonder what it is and, and, and they pick it up and they look at it, they perhaps smell it and, and they say manna. Do you know what manna means? Manna means, it's actually a question, what is it? So they're looking like, what is it? Manna, manna, what is it? Well, they found out what it was. It was bread provided from heaven. It was God's way of feeding them. And later in John chapter 6, Jesus refers to himself as the manna that has come down from heaven. That, that he feeds us, he sustains us. And that's exactly what the word of God does. When you read the word of God, when you study the word of God, you are being sustained by the bread of heaven. Amen? It's fascinating. Well, the altar of incense was the place where the priest would pray. And so this is really a symbol of prayer in the Christian life. And then the seven-armed candlestick was always burning. It, will, it never went out. It was always filled with oil. And I remember Jesus that said on the, in, the, in the famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, he said, you are the light of the world, right? You are the light of the world. And, and this light is not to be hidden. This light is to be seen by everyone. And, and the oil that fills the candlesticks and, and that, that causes it to, to continue to, to shine is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Often in the Bible, oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. When a priest would be anointed, when a king would be anointed, it was a symbol that the Holy Spirit would fill them. And so here you have this seven-armed candlestick that is continually burning, which is a symbol of the Christian life that we are to be filled with the Spirit of God in order to shine with the character of Jesus. Amen? So everything in the sanctuary is a picture of both the plan of salvation, it's a picture of Jesus, but it's also a picture of the experience that Jesus wants to give to us. And then you have the last, uh, the final object in the uh, sanctuary, and that was in what was called the most holy place. And there you have, as we referred to earlier, the Ark of the Covenant. And here God himself would dwell between the cherubims, the Shekinah glory. No one was to enter there, which is really also a picture that sin has separated us from God, right? And so there's a veil in between, but we can come into his presence. And guess how we can come into his presence? Through Jesus Christ. And do you know that the, 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 um, the high priest is actually a type of Jesus. And later in the book of New, in the New Testament, Jesus is called our high priest. And so the high priest that officiated in the most holy place once a year is a type of Jesus. And what he did is he would go into the holy place, most holy place, and he would make what we call an atonement 
and, and which is a, um, a service through which God's people become at one with God. We'll talk about more, more about that in just a moment. But he could go in there, just like Jesus as our high priest can go to the Heavenly Father and he can represent your name before the Heavenly Father. Amen? Fascinating. Well, in the New Testament book of Hebrews, chapter 8, verse 1 and 2, it's interesting that the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament talks about the earthly sanctuary, and he talks about the, the heavenly sanctuary, and he makes this observation. He says the following. He says, now this is the main point of the things that we are saying. And he's just been, you know, talking about the earthly sanctuary, talking about a better sanctuary in heaven. And then he says, this is now the main point of what we're saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying, like when you study the Old Testament sanctuary, when you look at the typology of the Jewish sanctuary, you need to understand something. They had a high priest, but, but we have another high priest. We have a better high priest. And our high priest is none other than Jesus Christ. And, and he's not in the earthly sanctuary. The earthly sanctuary has passed away. He's in the heavenly sanctuary. And where is he in the heavenly sanctuary? Well, he's seated at the right hand of the majesty of the throne room of God. We're talking about war of thrones. He's right there at the throne room of God. And what is he doing there? Well, he's ministering in behalf of us. Amen? So when you have trials, when you have difficulties, when you have obstacles in your life, where do you go? You go to the heavenly sanctuary by faith. Amen? And your petitions, your prayers, they are brought before the throne room of heaven through Jesus Christ, which is your high priest. And just like Hezekiah, when he find, found himself in great difficulty, he approached the God that dwells between the cherubim, and God answered his prayer. So today, we can approach the God that dwells between the heavenly cherubims, right there in the heavenly sanctuary, and Jesus will go and intercede on behalf of you before the omnipotent, almighty, all-powerful God, and he is ready to answer your prayers. This is the map to the throne room, my friends. This is the very map that brings us to the control center of the universe, the very place from which God orchestrates all the affairs within this great controversy between good and evil. And what a privilege for us to have access to the Word of God so that we can actually go and, and study the type that God has given us, study the old sanctuary, the, 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 the sanctuary pattern in the Old Testament, and understand just a little bit more about what that heavenly sanctuary is like. Now, there's something else fascinating about this whole sanctuary concept of Scripture, and that is that in a Jewish year, one Jewish year, they would have a number of what they called festivals that were connected with the sanctuary service. And as a matter of fact, if you count these uh, festivals, you, you can count six of them. And these are mentioned in uh, the book of Le Leviticus, chapter 23. And, you know, sometimes I talk to people and they say, oh, the book of Leviticus, oh, that's a book that I skip over because it's so boring and it talks about all these services and it's all related to the, the Jews of the past and it has nothing to do with me today. And, but you know what? There are some fascinating things even in the book of Leviticus. And in this book, when you go and you look at these festivals that they, that they had at that time, they are, they are interesting because they are, again, a type or a shadow of something greater to come. And as a matter of fact, during a Jewish year, they would have these six festivals, and each of these festivals was foreshadowing some greater event to come. And so for hundreds and hundreds of years, the Jews are living out a prophecy a continual prophecy of events that were to come. And I'm just, I, I, I look forward to this. I'm just going to lead you through these festivals and see if we can identify which six events these are pointing to, okay? So we're going to look at the Old Testament context of the feast, and then we're going to look at the fulfillment in the New Testament. And we're going to see that we are right somewhere here towards the end, okay? So, the first feast or festival that they would celebrate in the Jewish year was called the Feast of Passover. 
It was also connected to what they would call the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, in order to know the origin of Passover, you need to push the rewind button and you need to go all the way back to the Old Testament and you need to go all the way back to the second book in the Bible, the book of Exodus. And in the story of Exodus, where were they? They were enslaved in Egypt. And by the way, when they were enslaved in Egypt, they had no festivals. They had no, uh, no calendar of their own. They, had no, they were under the whole Egyptian system. But right when God intervened on their behalf and he sent Moses and Aaron into the land and the 10 plagues began to fall and God was about to take them out of Egypt, guess what he says? In uh, Exodus chapter 12, you can go back and, and, and read it later, but there in that chapter, in Exodus chapter 12, you have a whole description of how God is now introducing to them the first feast that they're going to keep from now on. And it's the feast of Passover. Now, what was the feast of Passover all about? Remember, they're enslaved in Egypt. Now, God sent one plague after another plague. And do you remember how many plagues he sent on Egypt before they were able to get out? Ten, right? Ten plagues. Now, the first plague did not result in, in the Exodus. The second plague did not result in the Exodus. It took ten plagues before they were able to get out of Egypt. Now, before the tenth plague, something fascinating happens. God comes to Moses and through Moses communicates to his people. And he says the following, I want you to take a lamb. I want you to take a lamb and I want you to select that lamb on the 10th day of the, what is now going to become the first Jewish month. Now remember, they're, un, they're under Egypt. They're under the, the system of Egypt, the calendar of Egypt. But God says, I'm now about to deliver you. I'm about to deliver you. And from now on, this is going to be the beginning of the year. And you're going to celebrate it by the deliverance out of Egypt. And so on this first month, which became the month of Nisan, or also referred to as the month of Abib, they said on the 10th day of that month, you're going to select the lamb. It has to be without blemish. No sickness upon that lamb, no, not a crippled lamb, a, a, a lamb without blemish, a perfect lamb. You select it on the 10th day and you wait four days. And then on the 14th day of the first, what, what will become the first Jewish month, you are to take that innocent, perfect, uh, without blemish lamb and you are to sacrifice that lamb. You are to take the blood of the lamb and you are to put it on your doorpost. Now, and why did they have to put it on their doorpost? Because when the 10th plague came upon Egypt, it was, you might remember this, the 10th plague was an angel of destruction that moved through the land of Egypt and he took the life of the firstborn of every Egyptian. But in order for God's people to be protected from this angel of destruction, they were to put the blood on the doorpost. That's why it's referred to as the feast of Passover because the angel would pass over the homes where the blood was applied on the doorpost. Now, this is full of imagery and a, an amazing prophecy of something that was going to happen. Now think about this. They are enslaved in Egypt. They're enslaved in Egypt. They need to take a lamb. They select it on the 10th day. They sacrifice it on the 14th day. When the lamb is sacrificed and the blood is applied, the next day they are free. They are free. They get, they get out of slavery. They are out of bondage. They are out of Egypt. This is a prophecy of Jesus that would come. Because do you know that when Jesus came, that right before his crucifixion, four days before his crucifixion, he rode into Jerusalem. Before that time, uh, he, he, he often said, you know, he would often not want to be uh, uh, seen. And, and often when he would perform a miracle, he would say, don't tell anyone about it. But, but then when he rode into Jerusalem, he showed himself publicly, just like the lamb was seen publicly for those days before it was slain. And then on the 14th day of the first Jewish month was exactly the day that Jesus was crucified. It happened on Passover. On Passover, Jesus was crucified. He, the, 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 what happened there at, 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 in Egypt, right before the Exodus, was a picture of Jesus that would be crucified. He is our Passover lamb. And just like the lamb in Egypt that died enabled them to exit out of bondage and slavery, so the death of Jesus enables us to leave the slavery of sin. Can you say amen? We can leave the slavery of sin. We can be set free from the bondage of the enemy. We can be set free from the bondage of sin when we apply the blood of the lamb in our lives, on our homes, in our families. We apply the blood so that Jesus can set us free. 
Paul, he put it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, he said, he said it very clear. Uh, you know, th there's, there's really no debate about, about this. Paul was so clear on this. He said, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. He says, this is it. If you want to know what the Passover is all about, it is pointing forward to Jesus and Jesus and he, he, he being sacrificed on our behalf. So take notice, we have six festivals in the Old Testament during a Jewish year. The first festival is pointing to the cross of Jesus, the death of Jesus. Now, what we're going to see is that the remaining five festivals are events that now transpire after the death of Jesus. And so what you have in one literal Jewish year of festivals is now going to be spread across 2,000 years of Christian history as it marks pivotal, important moments within the development of the Christian movement. This is, this is amazing. We have a prophecy. We have a prophecy that, that took place for hundreds of years uh, in the Jewish culture that now portrays the development of the Christian movement as we progress in time. And so let's look at what was then the very next festival, or the very next feast. It was actually connected to Passover. So this is actually together with Passover. You had Passover on the 14th day. And then on the 15th day, on the very next day, they would, um, they would eat what was known as the unleavened bread. It actually tells us in Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 6. And on the 15th day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. Do you know what unleavened bread is? Well, it's basically bread without leaven. Now, what does leaven do in bread? Leaven causes it to? to rise. Okay, now listen to this. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus came down. He's the bread. Okay, so on the 14th day, Jesus dies on the cross. Where was Jesus on the 15th day? Where was Jesus on the next day? In the tomb. Jesus is the bread of life. Bread without leaven, bread that is not yet risen. Are you with me? This is a prophecy, a prophecy for hundreds of years that Jesus, the bread of life, would come. But on the 15th day, on the very day that the Jews always would eat the unleavened bread, it was a prophecy of Jesus in the tomb. He is not yet risen. So that was the unleavened bread. But the unleavened bread was followed by another interesting feast. And this was known as the Feast of First Fruits. So we have the Feast of Passover, followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was actually connected to the Passover. And then you would have what they call the Feast of Firstfruits. Listen to what it says in Leviticus 23, verse 9 to 11. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheave of the firstfruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheave before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. And listen to this. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Now, what they did is they would go out into the field and they would take the barley and they would, they would take a little bit of the, of the a sheave of the barley and they would actually go into the sanctuary and the priest would wave it before the Lord as a thank offering of a great harvest that would follow. Now, take notice. This is fascinating. When Jesus died on the 14th day of the first Jewish month on Passover, the next day, on the 15th day, he was in the tomb. But then on the day after the Sabbath, because on Sabbath he was in the tomb, the day after the Sabbath, which we would call Sunday or the first day of the week, this was the day that Jesus resurrected and rose, according to the scriptures. Now, this is also applied, or, or the resurrection of Jesus is connected exactly to this feast of firstfruits. Uh, Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. He recognized this. Paul the apostle says in the New Testament, but now Christ is risen from the dead, and listen to what he says, and he has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. So on that Sunday morning, the priest would take the, 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 the sheave of barley, he would go into the sanctuary, and he would wave it before the Lord. At the same time, Jesus resurrected from the tomb, and guess what he did? Well, he went up into the heavenly sanctuary. Remember when Mary wanted to grab him? And what did he say to Mary Magdalene? He said, uh, do not detain me, I need to go to my father. I need to go to my father. Jesus ascended that day into heaven, and guess what? He 
represented, he presented himself before the Heavenly Father as the first fruits. He's the first fruits. The first fruits indicate that a great harvest is following. Jesus has been resurrected from the grave. Jesus has conquered death. Jesus now represents himself before the Father. And guess what this is implying? Guess what this is saying? There's a great harvest that is going to follow. Amen? There are many people that are now in their tombs. But one day when Jesus returns, the first fruits has already been represented to the Father. It's already been accepted. We are living on the sunny side of history, my friends. The grave has been conquered. Death has been conquered. And when Jesus comes, there will be a great resurrection of the faithful. Amen? And all the indications of, of the shadows and types are now being fulfilled in Jesus. And we can have confidence that all of these things will ultimately be fulfilled that we read about. Jesus rose from the grave on that Sunday morning. He represented himself before his heavenly father, before the throne room of heaven. And he said, here I am, I've, death has been conquered and a great harvest is to follow. But now we move on because now we've looked at these first festivals, but there are more. Because as we move from the festival of Passover and unleavened bread to the, 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 the feast of the first fruits, so we have another feast. It's the third one that is mentioned here in, 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 uh, that is mentioned in the Old Testament. And that is the feast of, that is referred to as the feast of weeks, or later it became known as what we call Pentecost. Now, uh, you, probably more of you have heard about Pentecost than that you've heard about the feast of weeks. Uh, Pentecost is basically the fulfillment. But we need to back up a little bit and understand what actually Pentecost is all based on when you look at the Old Testament. There's, a, there's always a connection between um, this whole flow of this story of redemption. As a matter of fact, the Feast of Weeks referred to um, an event that happened 50 days after the Passover. So you had the Passover, and the original Passover was when they came out of Egypt, out of slavery. Guess what happened 50 days after? seven weeks basically after that they were gathered at a mountain called the mount of sinai and at the mount of sinai as the people of god were gathered together um, god manifested his presence in a very powerful way fire came down from the mountain and the people were actually very afraid and they said moses you go up and talk with god and so moses goes up into the mountain and what does moses receive from god he receives the ten commandments, right? The Ten Commandments written by God himself on stone. We'll talk more about that uh, in a later presentation about these amazing uh, commandments and amazing promises actually to each one of us. But they were received by Moses from God himself. And this was always referred to later on as the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Weeks. Oh, they kept the Passover because they remembered how they were set free from Egypt. They ate the unleavened bread um, and then they would keep the Feast of first fruits, knowing that a great harvest was about to follow. And they would also recognize the Feast of Weeks because they would always remember that they received the Ten Commandments from God from Mount Sinai. Sinai. Well, guess what? Jesus dies on the 14th day of the first month. Jesus is in the tomb on the 15th day of the first month. On the 16th day, he presents the first fruits before the heavenly throne. Guess what? 50 days after the Passover, what takes place? Well, the disciples are gathered in the upper room, and Jesus had said something to them before he ascended to the Father. He said, I want you to wait in Jerusalem. I want you to wait for the promise of my Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit. You wait there. And as they're waiting and, and, and they're confessing their sins to one another and they're praying together and, they, and they're humbling their hearts before one another as they are gathered in the upper room. You can read this in Acts chapter 2. Suddenly, the Holy Spirit comes and descends upon them. Amen? And there are tongues of fire above them and they are filled with the Spirit of God. Isn't it fascinating that the fulfillment of Pentecost was actually the feast of, or, or basically it was is based on the Feast of Weeks where they received the Ten Commandments. Isn't it interesting? The Ten Commandments were written on stone, but as they were gathered in the upper room and, 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 humili and, and humbled their hearts towards one another and prayed for the infilling of the Spirit, guess what? Those commandments that were written on stone were now being written in their hearts. And through the power of the Spirit, they could go out and they could manifest the love of God and, and the beauty of God and His character and the way of God that He had always wanted to make known to the world. 
And so there they are in the upper room filled with the Holy Spirit. And they went out. And you might remember that famous sermon of Peter. It isn't it amazing? Peter that denied his Lord three times. And yet now he is reinstated. And God entrusts him with this incredible duty of preaching that message on Pentecost. Isn't it amazing? Have you sometimes felt that you've disappointed God? Have you sometimes felt that you let him down? Look at Peter. Look at Peter. He was far down there, but God raised him up. Amen? And God can raise us up as well. And so he gets this incredible privilege of preaching this message on the day of Pentecost. And you can read it in Acts chapter 2. And one of the things he says in his sermon is the following. Acts chapter 2 and verse 33. He says, therefore being, and he refers to Jesus and what is now happening with Jesus. He says, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. So he's referring to the manifestation of God's Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And he says, what you are seeing, what you are hearing, the manifestation of the Spirit of God, guess what? It is because Jesus is in the throne room of heaven. (laughs) It is because Jesus is in the heavenly sanctuary. It is because Jesus is at the right hand of God and what he has received, he has given to us. You know, it was interesting because whenever a priest would begin his ministry in the sanctuary, this in the Old Testament type, whenever they would begin as their, 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 um, their ministry as a priest, something had to happen. They had to be anointed by oil. And what they would do is they would take oil, which is a symbol of the Holy Spirit, and they would take the priest, and guess what? They would pour the oil on the priest. Now, it wasn't like a little drop of oil. They actually poured really quite a lot of oil on them. Actually, there's a passage in the book of Psalms. I don't have this on the screen, but it just came to my mind now, and I want to share it with you. Psalms chapter 133 actually portrays a little bit of the picture of what an anointing would look like. Let me just read it quickly for you. The book of Psalms chapter 133. And listen, it's only three verses, this psalm, but listen to what it says. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And by the way, that first verse, that reminds me of the book of Acts. The disciples are gathered together in unity. And then it looks, look, it says in verse two, it is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron. Now it mentions Aaron here, which was the high priest the first high priest in the sanctuary service. It's running down his beard, running down the edge of his garments. It's like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing life forevermore. So what it's saying is this anointing is like he's just being poured oil upon him and the oil is dripping from his garments. And the picture that I get is that when Jesus began his high priestly ministry in the sanctuary, God anointed him with the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit, that oil, it dripped down on this earth upon the disciples on the day of Pentecost. Amen? And they were filled with the Spirit of God as they began to preach the gospel. And so Jesus ministers, just like the earthly minister or the earthly uh, priest would minister in the sanctuary here on earth, so Jesus is now ministering as our high priest in the heavenly sanctuary. Now we need to move on because time is moving on here, and we have still two festivals left, or basically three, three left. We have the Feast of Trumpets, and then we have the Great Day of Atonement, and then finally the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, what was the Feast of Trumpets? Actually, when you look at the Jewish year, in the beginning of the year, you had a number of events. You had the Passover, the Unleavened Bread, you had the, the Feast of First Fruits, then you had the Feast of Weeks. And basically then you would have a time where there was nothing of great significance for, for quite a while. And then in the latter part of the Jewish year, you would have another three events. And these are the events that we're getting to now the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And this is very interesting because the first three feasts, which were early in the Jewish year, are the events in the early Christian movements. In the early, in the beginning of the Christian movement from Jesus and his burial and his resurrection and the outpouring of the Spirit. And then when you come to the latter part of the Jewish year and you have these three remaining feasts, they refer to events in the latter course or the end of time. In other words, closer to the time in which we are living. Now, what was the Feast of Trumpets? The Feast of Trumpets was basically an announcement of the Day of Atonement that was going to come. And so for 10 days, the priest would blow the trumpet and everyone would know the Day of Atonement is coming. The Day of Atonement is coming. The Day of Atonement is coming. So it was a preparation for this major event in the Jewish year, which was called the Great 
Day of Atonement, one of the most important moments in the Jewish year. Now, what was the Day of Atonement? The Day of Atonement was the day upon which the sanctuary itself was cleansed. Now, now, now follow, me, follow this picture. When sin was brought into the sanctuary, it was transferred to the lamb, remember? The lamb was slain in the sanctuary. The priest would take the blood, and actually, even though the lamb would be sacrificed on the altar of sacrifice in the outer court, the priest would take some of the blood of the lamb, would go into the holy place of the sanctuary, and would sprinkle it on the veil. And this whole symbolism was basically that, that the sin has gone from the sinner to the lamb into the sanctuary. From the sinner to the lamb into the sanctuary. And this happened every day, day by day, month by month. And so once in a year, what they would do is they would call this the cleansing of the sanctuary. And so not only is sin being brought into the sanctuary, but now on the great day of atonement, sin is going to move out of the sanctuary and we're going to start a new year. We're going to start a new cycle. And uh, it's almost like, you know, <laughs> with the old computers, control, alt, delete, you know, get rid of everything. Get rid of everything. It's all there, but now we're going to cleanse it. We're gonna... and, and this happened in the following way. The high priest would, would, would take two goats and they would cast lots on these goats. And one would be called, one, one would be the Lord's goat and the other would be the scapegoat. And this is so powerful and so interesting because we're talking about here about the War of Thrones. We're talking about the conflict between good and evil. On the great day of atonement, there's actually nothing in the Bible that, that, that displays the great controversy in a more vivid way than the great day of atonement. The powers that are at, at enmity with one another because one was the Lord's goat, one was the scapegoat, one was representing Christ, the other was representing the devil and Satan. And so what they would do is they would, on the Day of Atonement, you can read this in the book of Leviticus, chapter 16, they would take these into the most holy, they would take these into the most holy place, or basically into the sanctuary, and the Lord's goat, which was a symbol of Christ, would be slain, just like Jesus died for us, and then the high priest would take the blood of the Lord's goat, or Jesus, representing Jesus, would go into the most holy place, and guess what he would do? He would take the blood, and he would put it on the mercy seat. Now, this is a symbol. God is dwelling in the Shekinah glory between the cherubims. What is inside of that ark? Can you, rem can you remember? The Ten Commandments. Now, are we guilty of breaking the Ten Commandments, yes or no? I hope everyone said yes. <laughs> if not, come and talk to me afterwards. We're all guilty of breaking the Ten Commandments, right? So, so we're all guilty of, of death. We all deserve death. The wages of sin is death, right? But now, God in his mercy, between God, the Shekinah glory, and the Ten Commandments, the blood of Jesus is placed. Amen? Because he makes atonement for us. He's the only one that lived righteously. He is taking our place so that when we come to the Father, the Father looks at you, but he sees you through his son Jesus, through the blood of the Lamb. Because Jesus has paid the price. This is the atonement. Atonement actually comes from the word at one month. He wants to become at one with you. And that happens through the sacrifice of Jesus. And so this happened on the great day of atonement. Now, what did they do with the scapegoat, the other one? Well, after the sins were atoned for by, Jesus, by, by the, the goat that represented Jesus, the blood or, and, and the blood was applied on the, um, on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, then they would also place the sins on the scapegoat, not in the sense that the scapegoat is the sin bearer in the same way that Jesus bears our sins, but he is, rep he is responsible for all the sins. He is the origin of all the sins, right? And so they would take that scapegoat and someone would take him into the wilderness and he would die in the wilderness. The goat would die in the wilderness. A picture of the great controversy. Jesus died for our sins, but ultimately the devil is responsible for all the sins. And this was all typified on the great day of atonement in the sanctuary service. And when this happened, the sanctuary was now symbolically cleansed. And so all the sins that had accumulated in the sanctuary throughout the year were now done away with, and now they could basically start over again. And uh, it was said that as the Jews would meet each other on the great day of atonement, they would say, may your name be written in the, in, the, in the Lamb's book of life, in the book of life. 
They would refer to, f- refer to this moment as a, a pivotal, important, solemn moment because if you had brought your sins into the sanctuary, then your sins were now being cleansed from the sanctuary. But if you had not brought your sins into the sanctuary, you had not confessed your sins upon the Lamb, then you were to bear your sins yourself. So it was a very solemn and important moment in the Jewish year, the great day of atonement. Now, when John, in the book of Revelation, when he has a vision of the heavenly sanctuary, look at what he says in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 19. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. Now, this happens um, in the context of the very final events. And we're going to study this more on a future evening, but there are prophecies that indicate very clearly that we are now living in the, what we could call the antitypical Day of Atonement. So in other words, the Day of Atonement that occurred on one day in the Jewish system, now that period is also happening in the end of time before Jesus comes back. In other words, it is very important for us now to know what, our Jesus, what Jesus our Savior is doing. He is our high priest. He is making atonement for us, right? And now we are to bring our sins symbolically into the heavenly sanctuary so that we can be forgiven and cleansed when this, when this takes place, the day of atonement. Now, Jesus is our high priest. He's in the heavenly sanctuary. We can come to him by faith and approach the throne room of heaven, and we can know that he is interceding on our behalf. But do you know there's one last feast that is left. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, what is that? What is the Feast of Tabernacles? Well, the Feast of Tabernacles happened once a year as well, and what they would do is what it was basically our remembrance of their dwelling in the wilderness and how they had been given the promised land. So what they would do is they would actually go and they would uh, kind of, you could call it like a a camp out, and they would sleep in in these booths that they would make or these tents that they would make, and they would remember how they dwelt in the wilderness, which was a temporary uh, dwelling, and then they would celebrate how they had arrived in the promised land of Canaan. So it was a celebration of arriving in the promised land, the Feast of Tabernacles. Now think about this. What did Jesus say to his disciples and what does he say to us? In John chapter 14, verse 1 to 3, he says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Guess what? The Feast of Tabernacles is a type of our earthly, of, of our heavenly home that God wants to give to us. Just like the, 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 the Hebrew nation was entering into the earthly promised land of Canaan, so we as a, a people of God are waiting to enter into the heavenly Canaan. Amen? Amen. The heaven. So the Feast of Tabernacles has not yet taken place. We're still waiting for it, right? Feast of Passover, Jesus died, that's happened. Feast of uh, um, unleavened bread, Jesus in the tomb, that has already happened. Feast of first fruits, Jesus represented before the Father, it has already happened. Feast of weeks or Pentecost, it has already happened for 2,000 years ago. The Feast of Trumpets, announcing the Day of Atonement, has already happened. We are now living in the Day of Atonement. Jesus is our high priest in the heavenly sanctuary, making atonement for us right now. And then when he comes again, we will enter into the Feast of Tabernacles. He will take us into the promised land, amen, that he has prepared for us in heaven. Oh, that will be a wonderful day. What do you think? You look forward to that? Oh, that will be amazing. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard. It has not even entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for us. It will be better than you can imagine, better than you can ever, ever anticipate. God is preparing a place for his people. But before he comes, my friends, and before we celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles together with God in heaven, before that, now on the great day of atonement, now in the time where our sins are being wiped out, now as we are to come in repentance before God, may you know that Jesus is your high priest and may you know where to go. He's in the heavenly sanctuary, amen? 
He is right there. I want to close with this, with this text. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Listen to this. It's full of, of, of a compassionate God, a loving God, a God that wants a relationship and a covenant with you more than you could e- ever imagine. It says the following in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 to 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen? Oh, we have a high priest. And he says, you know what? I have been through what you have been through. I lived on this earth. I can sympathize with you. I know the weaknesses that you are facing. And I say to you, come boldly before me. That means come with confidence. We can come with confidence before the heavenly throne of grace. There's a war of thrones, but there's a throne that is inviting you to come. And that's the throne of God where Jesus dwells. And he says, come to me and obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Is there anyone in need tonight? Oh, I'm in need tonight. I need power. I need encouragement. I need God in my life. And I know where to go. And I hope you know where to go. The map to the throne room. Remember, Jesus is in the sanctuary, in the heavenly sanctuary as our high priest. And you can come to him by faith. I have one last passage to share with you tonight. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. I think this is such an encouragement. The Bible says, therefore he, Jesus, is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's what Jesus is doing. He's making intercession for us. That's what he lives for, and he can save to the uttermost. No one has gone too far or is too, 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 removed, too far removed from God. He can save you to the uttermost. Amen? Come to him as you are. Come to your high priest. Jesus loves you, and he has a plan for your life. And he says, come with courage and boldness, for you are his. Amen? Let's pray in closing. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Thank you so much for the sanctuary message. Thank you that we have a map to the throne room, that we can know where to go when we are filled with fear, when we are filled with, when our lives are filled with, with trouble and trials and disappointments. Thank you that we know where to go. Thank you that you live to make intercession for us and help us with humility to come before you, Lord, so that we can be filled with your spirit. And we thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness and that you are always there for us. We ask that you will fill us now with that joy that only you can give and guide us, Lord, the rest of this evening and bring us back together tomorrow, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.